We are, have been covering the book of Isaiah. Tonight we're going to cover chapter 16, 18, 20, 21, 22, 45. But not all of the verses. Just a, a scattering of those verses. Now, this is Isaiah 1 through chapter 66. There's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And so that's all 66 chapters in the numbers listed there. This, the green, is how many chapters we have read together, studied together in their totality. All the verses, or just about all of the verses, in all of those chapters. And then the blue ones are the ones that we've read parts of. So out of 66 books of Isaiah, we've read a good portion of 64 of the chapters of Isaiah together. And I think that's a pretty amazing accomplishment when, uh, when we started out. I didn't think I read all the chapters, read it over and over and over again in the book, and said, what on earth is in this chapter? What on earth can I preach in this chapter? So if anyone can find anything in chapter 15 and chapter 23 that they want to preach on, feel free to let me know, and, and, and we'll give you the pulpit, we'll give you the bema, uh, because I couldn't find anything in those two chapters uh, to say anything about. But all the rest, and like I said, the vast majority... Full text, full chapters, uh, and again, I n- never thought we'd get that far in when we when we started. So, all right. So let's look at these uh, remnant portions of some of these other five. Now, before we do that, I want to put into context in history some of this. In Second Chronicles chapter thirty-two twenty-three, it says, "And many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and presented to Hezekiah, king of Judah." so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations thereafter. And so uh, Isaiah and Hezekiah lived at the same time. Isaiah lived many kings, several kings. I forget exactly how many, uh, but Hezekiah was one of them. And it mentions here that other nations were bringing gifts to Jerusalem and to Hezekiah. And we're going to see that, I think, at least in two of the verses that we'll be looking at today. In Isaiah 16, verse 1, it says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughters of Zion. So it's saying there, uh, to Moab to send gifts, to, uh, to send a lamb, uh, as we read in the other text, that they sent gifts to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah. And so here it's saying, send the lamb to the ruler of the land. And so not only does that fit into the context of other nations were sending Hezekiah gifts, but also then on the spiritual aspect of send the lamb, the lamb, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, it could have said send a lot of things, right? Send your gold, send your silver, send, you know, some timber, uh, you know, lots of different things. Uh, but to send your, the lamb, send the lamb. And they send your flocks, you know, it says send the lamb. And, uh, and so, uh, interesting text on that. Verse 3, take counsel, execute judgment. He's talking to Moab. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. And so God is giving Moab an opportunity to live righteously. Give the lamb, present the lamb to, uh, to Jerusalem, to the Mount of Zion, Mount Zion. And also do these things, take counsel, execute judgment, do what's right, make your shadow at the middle of the night of the day, hide the outcast, be a shelter, uh, be a, a shadow, be a cooling shade, 
to those who are outcasts. Do not betray him who escapes so to uh, provide for him. And my outcast, let him dwell with you and shelter. And so righteous actions. So not only send the lamb, but also live the life. Verse 5, still chapter 16. In mercy the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Well, in mercy the throne will be established. Who has established God's throne, the throne of David, in mercy, the one who is the one who sits on David's throne and sits in it in truth and sits in it judging and seeking justice and hastening the righteousness to take place in the world. Another messianic prophecy. So this chapter starts with, send the lamb, and then he describes the lamb of God who becomes the king. The lamb to the king sits on the throne. In chapter 18, Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings. That's kind of interesting. We're going to look at this land shadowed, or the shadowing with buzzing wings, that is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of reeds, saying, Go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a terrible people, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. So in Africa... Uh, again, they're sending ambassadors. And so as I said, with Hezekiah, the nations had trade and gifts for Hezekiah. So here's another um, reference to that. But this shadow with buzzing wings, this just this week, this was in the news. I don't know if you heard about this in the news. Just this week, right outside the Temple Mount, right outside the southern wall of Jerusalem, right outside the southern steps, they're still excavating, just on the top part of the city of David, the Ophel, they call it, um, they found this, um, this seal, Hezekiah's seal. And it says on the seal, um, it's a little hard to see in the, in, the, in the actual seal there picture, so there's a diagram here, a drawing here, that makes it plainer. And it says, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. And so the very one we're talking about this week uh, and again, they, uh, they didn't find it this week, but they published it just uh, two days ago uh, in the news. I see a, a number of shaking heads. You've read the articles. But look at what's inside the seal. These wings. Just as it said in the text. Now, this wing thing, and then this is a onyx? Onyx? Onk? Onk? Thank you. Onk, 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 onk. Okay, um, which is an Egyptian symbol, which is very interesting. And so there was trade going on back and forth with Hezekiah in Egypt, and we, we, we've read about Isaiah telling the kings, don't depend on Egypt, depend on the Lord. And so on his seal, he's got this wing thing and this Egyptian uh, symbol, which is supposed to be a symbol of life uh, for very different reasons. But that's kind of interesting because we read about Hezekiah. It says in 2 Kings 18, verse 3, he did what was right in, all, in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden images. And so he did what was right. He lived righteously. And I think in one place it says that he did 
and, and no one did better after him uh, among the kings. Um, and so he did what was right. He got rid of the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden armages. Uh, he got rid of the idols. And yet on his seal, he's got this symbol, two times on, on either side of it, this uh, symbol from Egypt. And so that's just kind of an interesting thing. I don't know why uh, and all the whereabouts on that, um, but just kind of interesting. All right, verse, still chapter, Isaiah chapter 18, verse 7. In that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts to Mount Zion. So again, bring gifts. They're sending gifts. These other nations are sending gifts to Mount Zion, just as it said in, uh, in the Second Chronicles text. We looked at in relation to Hezekiah, and then it said about these wings, and Hezekiah's seal had wings on it, or at least one of his seals. I don't know if he had more than one in his whole reign. Um, Isaiah chapter 20, verse 1. In the year that Sargon, the king of Assyria, fought against Assad and took it, the Lord spoke to Isaiah, the son of Amos, go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. Isaiah did so, walking naked and barefoot. And uh, this is a short chapter, and I just thought this was interesting. It kind of gives us an insight into the life of a prophet. Uh, not so easy being a, a prophet, you know? And uh, sometimes God tells you to do weird stuff, and you, and you got to do it. And you, then we wonder, why don't, they didn't listen to the prophet? You know, well, if you saw someone walking around naked, would you listen to him? <laughs> but uh, yeah, God had a purpose. Now, I don't know if anybody's ever tried, you know, wanting to know God's will in your life. And so you just open the Bible with your eyes closed and just flip through some pages and put your finger down. That's very dangerous. Uh, <laughs> I mean, unless the Lord is directing your turnings and your finger, you may end up in this text. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, so, God, what do you want me to do today? <laughs> Go and remove the sackcloth from your body. Take your sandals off your feet. And Isaiah did so walking naked and barefoot. So, um, and then verse 3, and the Lord said... Do quickly, yes. The Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years as a sign, some say it was three days, and it was symbol of the three days for the year, or for three years, as a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians and the Ethiopians as prisoners and captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered. And just as... God said, so it was. And just as it said three years, and again, some interpreters say that Isaiah didn't walk around the whole three years. He walked away three days, symbolic of the three years. Uh, but whatever the case, I'm sure if God wanted him to do it for three years, he would have been willing to do it for three years. He was willing to do it for three days. So, um, And so again, God's word comes to pass just as God says. And so they might have thought he was you know, crazy or not listening, but after it comes to pass, they knew that God's word had spoken through him. Chapter 21. The burden against the wilderness of the sea. As the wind, and interpreters interpret that as Babylon, and we'll see that here in a minute. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, 
from a terrible land, a distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunder of plunders besiege O Media. And so it's talking about Medo-Persia, O Media, Medo-Persians attacking Babylon. Let me see that again, even clearer in some more verses. Verse 5. Prepare the tables, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink, arise, you princesses, anoint the shield. The Lord said to me, go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels, and he listened earnestly with great care. What was Babylon doing the night that the Medo-Persians came in and attacked the city, uh, overthrew the city of Babylon? They were having a party. They were preparing the table, setting a watchman in the tower, eating and drinking, arising the princesses, the princes, uh, and the shield, um, but they did not close the gates, Daniel tells us. And Isaiah tells us and prophesies that the gates would be left open, and they come in. Then he cried, A lion, my lord, I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night. Look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And so he's describing the fall of Babylon, which takes place many years after Isaiah. Uh, I don't know, close to maybe 100 years after Isaiah, the fall of Babylon takes place. And he predicts it, media, Medo-Persians coming and attacking, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And that phrase, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, is quoted in Revelation, coming right out of Isaiah, that the fall of Babylon represented the fall of the Babylonian systems of this world, the confusion of this world, the confusion of religions in this world. So that was Isaiah chapter 21, verse 8 and 9. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 8. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great, and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool, you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down houses to fortify the wall. And he's talking about Hezekiah and what Hezekiah did to fortify the city because um, the Assyrians come and lay siege to Jerusalem. And so some of the things he did was uh, the city was damaged, and he gathered together the waters of the lower pool, and he built fortified walls. Verse 11. He says, you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. And so this is one of the channels of water that Hezekiah dug. And it's still today, and we're able to walk in it today. There's Barbara and, and there's Larry uh, and Celeste uh, in Hezekiah's tunnel. Takes us from the pool of Siloam, uh, where, the, where Solomon was anointed, and underneath the city of David, they dug from both sides through this limestone, amazingly chiseling through, and met in the middle. Still today don't know how they did it. There's still lots of discussion on how, what, how they knew the course and how they met, and there was a few times that it got lost. You see where Larry and Barbara is, is the path 
Where Celeste is, is they started going and they went that far, and Celeste was able to get her whole body in there, and they said, we're going the wrong way, and they came back and then they went that way and chiseled that way. Well, how did they know they were going the wrong way even? Uh, so that's, you know, a pretty amazing feat, and it goes pretty, it takes us, I think, about a half hour or so to walk through it. The water is, right there, it's down to her ankles. Uh, sometimes it's up to, I don't know if you can see the water line there on her pants. Uh, so that's probably a whole uh, eight inches on Barbara. But, uh, <laughs> but the water does get a little high, but uh, it's cool water, spring water going through. And so again, Isaiah uh, spoke about that in his book. Chapter 22, verse 22. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder so that he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Here again, there's a messianic prophecy. Uh, talking about the Messiah. The house of David will lay on his, his shoulders. He will open a door and no one will shut. And Revelation quotes this verse, this phrase out of this verse. Oh, he shall open a door and no one shall shut, and he shall shut the door and no one shall open. God's in control. He opens the doors in our lives and he shuts doors in our lives. And you know, sometimes we can get disappointed when it seems like a door has closed on us and we have to wait on the Lord and he will open some other way. He's got some other path. Right? So God never shuts a door without at least opening a window or something. God always has an escape route for us, and he has a direction for us. And if we surrender to him and follow him, he will open the right doors for us, and he will close the wrong doors for us, and he will lead us and guide us and direct us. And we can rely on him as a fastened peg in a secure place. And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. And so, you know, a secure peg to hang your coat on, to trust in, to rely on, to hang your tools on, a secure peg that is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. We can lay our cares, we can lay our burdens upon him. Take off the weight off our backs, take off the backpack, take off the, the burdens and lay them on him. Let him carry him. He is the secure peg. He is the fastened peg in the secure place. In the holy place. He is the Messiah, the son of David. Who will open the doors and close the doors. Who will reign in righteousness. Who is the Lamb of God. Who will sit on the throne forever and ever. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 15. You are God who hide yourself, God of Israel, the Savior. And there is Yeshua's name right there. There's the Messiah's name right there. The Savior, Yeshua. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced. All of them, they shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. Again, the phrase is the, of his name. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. Wonderful promise. If you're going through a time of disgrace, someone's trying to disgrace you, or maybe you made some mistakes and you're disgraced. Wonderful promise here. He will save us with an everlasting save, salvation. 
Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation, and you shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. What a wonderful promise. What a comforting promise. As we've messed up, we put our foot in our mouths, or we put our foot in some droppings, or you know, we stepped in it, or some messed up, fell, we tripped, we broke something, we did something, or we've been hurt, or we've been maligned, falsely or falsely accused. Wonderful promise. God is able to cleanse the mistake, wash us clean. Whatever disgrace has been, again, false accusations upon us, God will wipe it all away. We will not be ashamed and not be disgraced forever and ever because the Lord saves his people with his salvation. Not our salvation, not our works, not our efforts, not our abilities, but he saves us by his salvation. What he has done for us. Yeshua The salvation saves us by his merit, by his work in our behalf, by being the Lamb of God, slain for us. To take our punishment, to take our sins, to take our burdens, to be our substitute, to be our atonement, to grant us forgiveness and deliverance and freedom. He saves us, and saves us in deed, in action, and in verity, and in truth, in a surety, not a partial salvation. The Son shall set you free, you shall be free, in deed, in truth, in righteousness, fully, completely. He sets us free. He saves us with his salvation. Still 45, verse 18 Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. God is amazing. Does Isaiah believe that God created, that God's the creator? They believe in a literal creation? Is that how it's written? They believe in a literal, that God created the earth? Yeah, that's how it's written. So again, you know, we say that, uh, well, the first couple chapters of uh, Genesis are just figurative. Well, then we've got to tear out and cross out all of these things. When we look at the amazing creation that God has created in this world. So many different things. And look at the balance of life. Everything balancing one another. Everything giving, except the carnal heart of man. Everything else is giving and giving continually. Flowers give fragrance, and the, and the plants give carbon dioxide. Isn't that amazing? They're destroying the planet, these plants. Actually, they give oxygen. I'm sorry. They give oxygen. We give carbon dioxide. We're destroying by breathing. Stop breathing, everyone. You're destroying this planet with all your carbon dioxide. But we breathe out, and if we didn't breathe out the carbon dioxide, the plants would have nothing to breathe in. And if the plants had nothing to breathe in, then the plants would not have any oxygen to breathe out, and then we wouldn't have anything to breathe. Amazing symmetry that God put together. Right? So if God created the plants, or if the plants evolved out of nothing, out of slime, 
thousands of years before us, billions of years before living uh, animals, mammals, then what they breathe? They couldn't breathe. They wouldn't have any carbon dioxide, unless there were some factories around and cars polluting, you know, sending carbon dioxide into the atmosphere for the for the plants to breathe. So God had to create it all together. It all had to come together. I wonder which blade of grass we came from. You know, I mean, that we evolved out of a blade of grass, right? Or did the blade of grass just amazingly evolve on their own and mammals amazingly evolved and you know there's all this amazing unbelievable uh, statistically impossible things happening for the plants and for the birds and for the animals and mammals and all of them having an amazing thing coming out of slime like some grass came out of slime and trees came out of other slime or did the grass evolve to trees the grass wanted to be taller and it became a tree <laughs> you know some decided to become a pine tree, and some pine trees became oak trees. Which came first, the pine tree or the oak tree? Yeah, I mean, we don't see a tree of evolution. We see everything evolving, or everything coming up separately. Everything being unique, everything being its own, after its own kind. Another amazing thing is you look at, again, the way things work, that Everything eats something else, right? That's you know how it works, right? You know, the cows eat the grass, right? <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, the lions eat the cows or whatever, you know? And so things are eating, the termites eat the wood, right? And so everything is helping everything to process and to break down. But not, humans have no natural enemy. Isn't that weird? Ourselves, yeah, we kill ourselves, right? That's very sad that's happening. But yeah, but... I don't know if there's any others, maybe sharks or something like that, that don't have any other natural enemy. That's kind of weird. Unless God had his stamp upon the creation. There'd be no logical reason, if it was just evolution, for humans to not have any natural enemy. What would be the, you know, the evolutionary reason? Somehow we just evolved, because that made us, you know, Prone, uh, less prone to get eaten. Survival of the fittest. Those humans that smelled the worst, tasted the worst, they're the ones who survived because everyone else got eaten by lions and tigers and bears, right? You know, I mean, but God's word says, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is no other. Where? Verse 21. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? There is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There's Yeshua. There is none beside me. Look to me. It's interesting. It says, just God and the Savior and none beside me. That me is the unified. Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. He is the God. He is the Lord God. There's not many gods that get us to heaven. There's not many paths to heaven. Anyone says they believe that and believe the Bible at the same time, 
How can they do that? How can they? God said, I am God and there is no other God. Not many gods. This is God. God who is a savior. God who forgives. God who is gracious. God who saves us from sinning and empowers us to do right. God who transforms us. Gives us the ability to minister to others and hover over them and shelter them. Minister to them. Take care of them. God who calls us to labor for him. To be his people. He is a just God. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. This is quoted in Revelation as well. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. And the word has gone forth out of his mouth and it shall not return. And Isaiah says the same phrase in another chapter, I think it's 55, shall not return to him void. Word of the Lord will go forth from his mouth and it will not return void. It will come back empty-handed. And we see that. Right? God prophesied Babylon's destruction by the Medes and Persians over 100 years in advance. So if Isaiah got that right, and God got it right that uh, three years later that the Egyptians and the Ethiopians were going to be taken over by the Assyrians, I mean, how could he know those things? I'm going to be right on those things and wrong on creation. I can be right on those things and wrong on the salvation. He's right on all those things. So God gave us the time prophecies and the and the and the event prophecies so that we can know these other parts are true as well. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall take an oath, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. That doesn't mean they will confess it in repentance. But every tongue shall confess. Every tongue shall acknowledge. Like Judas throwing down the coin, I have betrayed innocent blood. It'll be a, 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 a proclamation announcement, but not one of repentance. It'll be confession, but not repentance. There's a difference. We should have both confession and repentance. Confession is just admitting you're wrong. I got caught, I admit it. But I would do it again if I had the opportunity. That's not repentance. That's just confession. True confession will lead to true repentance. True repentance is a turning from the sin, a hatred for the sin, and by God's grace and God's power, not doing it again. So every tongue, even the wicked, will acknowledge, even Satan himself, will acknowledge God was right. I was wrong but they won't want to change. And he shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. Our righteousness and our strength cometh from the Lord, not from us, not from ourselves. God is the righteous one. He empowers us, he strengthens us. So everything from mercy and forgiveness to transformation, power, strength, and righteousness. He gives us the whole package. And all of that cometh from the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 25, in the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified 
and shall glory. He'll take away our shame. He'll take away our disgrace. He will justify us. He'll perfect us. He'll straighten us. And he shall glorify. He shall be glorified in us. Amazing. Amazing promise of God. What he does to the carnal human heart. To the sinful, wicked humans that we are. That he saves us. That he delivers us. That he transforms us. His everlasting glory and love. So there was a lot there, a lot of different things. And so if God spoke to your heart tonight on some specific issue, or maybe more than one issue, whatever it was that you were needing tonight, hoping God's salvation, claiming his promises, just as he promised, what would happen to Medo-Persia, what would happen to Moab, also the promises of his salvation, of his righteousness, of his forever lasting Deliverance from shame and disgrace. Take comfort in that. If you're needing strength, if you're needing power, if you're needing righteousness, it says, He is the Lord that giveth strength and righteousness. If you're needing strength to overcome something in your life, if you're needing strength to face some trial, if you're needing strength to, to overcome some situation you're going through, claim God's strength, lean on His mighty right hand. Maybe you're needing a peg to hang your burdens on, to hang your woes on. He is the peg. He is the righteous peg that we can trust in. Maybe you're needing some door open to you. Maybe some door needs to be closed, or maybe some door did close. And you're needing God to guide and direct in the next stage of your life. Trust in Him. He has the keys of David. He sits on David's throne. He is the Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Creator and our recreator from the ends of the earth. He loves each one of us. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we're thankful for your might and your power. We are thankful, Lord, you do all things and you do it all well. We're thankful for the book of Isaiah and we're thankful we've had the opportunity to study it and learn from it. And we pray, Lord, that the lessons we've gleaned will not only be in our minds, but they'll be in our hearts and they'll transform us into your image, forgiving us and cleansing us through the sacrifice of the Messiah, living in us through the Holy Spirit, and empowering us with your grace to live righteously, to do righteously. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.